It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast offering insights into the world of technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show, we'll explore how creative artificial intelligence can be. One of the most exciting trends in AI over the last couple of years is the emergence of AI as a creative force. Also, 3D printing has been slow to disrupt the construction industry, but it could now be happening. If you built skyscrapers using this technique, you would actually be able to fit an entire extra floor for every three floors of a skyscraper. And finally, we'll hear how the long-established, hollowed, traditional, jolly good old sport of cricket is incorporating even more technology into the game. You'll be able to work out, or see, in fact, broadcast graphics showing how they swung the bats to get the speed they do on the ball. But first, man has invented the wheel the printing press, the ballpoint pen, The Economist. And now we are in the midst of a revolution in artificial intelligence and machine learning. But how far has AI itself come in terms of creativity? John Bruner is an editor at O'Reilly Media, where he oversees the coverage of artificial intelligence, bots, and the economics of data. And at O'Reilly, he has a special vantage point because it gives him a lens into the AI environment by dint of being close to the development community as well as the entrepreneurial startup community. He joined me in the studio recently to talk about this new facet to artificial intelligence research. One of the most exciting trends in AI over the last couple of years is the emergence of AI as a creative force. AI, as we know, is very good at imitating human judgment and human inference, but it turns out to also be fairly good at a very primitive level at imitating human creativity. So what does that actually mean? So if you create a a certain kind of deep learning model called a generative adversarial network. You can feed in a lot of examples of some kind of human creative output, music or photos or movies, and have it generate new content that resembles what it's been fed. Okay, so I think I've seen some examples of that online where people would take, say, a photograph of a person and a picture of Cubism by Pablo Picasso, and lo and behold, it turns into a cubist picture of a person done in that style. Yeah, exactly. You can see people take black and white photos and colorize them with this kind of technology. You can also see people describe a photo that they want to see and then have the network generate it from scratch. You can say a boy holding a baseball bat with a hat and it generates, you know, something like that. So how do these GANs or generative adversarial networks work? A generative adversarial network is actually two different networks, and they're adversarial, as the name implies. One of them learns to make some kind of distinction between whether data that it's given is, so to speak, real or fake. The other one learns to generate data that's fed into the discriminative network. And over time, the two networks learn from each other. So the generating network gets feedback from the discriminative network. It learns from the discriminator whether the data that it has sent over appears to be real or fake. 
and then it figures out how it can change the data that it's generating in order to make it more convincing. The discriminator improves as well because as it goes, it learns from the generator whether the data that's being fed to it is real or fake. So it kind of learns whether it's correct or not, and it learns to make itself more accurate. It's all about creating a standard for what feels like real output, a real image that's an actual photograph of something, or a real piece of music by an actual composer, and then creating new data that meets that standard. Will these generative adversarial networks actually be truly creative in the sense that it can actually come up with something on its own, if you will, a new genre of music, a new genre of painting, rather than simply cross-apply what human beings have already done. Well, a big part of human creative output is, after all, taking your predecessor's work and building upon it. These networks have a creative process that is remarkably similar. You have some kind of context, some understanding of the data that's gone before you, and that helps you to create something new. The generative adversarial networks that we have today are not profoundly creative. They're really imitative, and they're at the edge of imitative. I mean, you, you could tell when you look at the output of these GANs that they are computer-generated. As they get more sophisticated, you'll see them get more convincing. The manner in which AI tends to get more sophisticated is that it becomes able to make higher-order judgments and to reason at higher, more abstract levels. We actually have a sample of AI-generated music that you suggested to us, John. So could you talk us through exactly what is going on here? My favorite example of generative AI comes from a student named Daniel Johnson. He built a kind of model called a recurrent neural network, and he sort of heaved in a bunch of classical piano compositions and got it to generate new music that resembles the music it was fed. This is my favorite of Daniel Johnson's generative compositions. It is remarkably convincing until you hear it start to repeat a single chord for a really long time. At this point, the algorithm is probably stuck in a local minimum. So every time it plays a note, it asks itself what the next note should be given the previous note. And the space of solutions that it's considering isn't quite large enough, or its way of searching through that space isn't quite sophisticated enough to come up with a really good solution beyond just repeating the same note again. Eventually, it does manage to climb out of the local minimum and move on. This is a really nice illustration of the current state of generative AI. This neural network is convincingly reproducing the low-level texture of classical music, you know, the scales and arpeggios and so on. But it isn't really grasping the high-level structure of classical music, the ways that you'd expect the melodies and harmonies to develop over the course of the composition. It is the structure that requires a lot of higher-order reasoning, and true creativity requires even higher-order reasoning than that, plus a great deal of context from, you know, the human experience. So this is the gap that's closing fairly quickly right now, but computers will likely never be able to understand and imitate the most complex creative processes of human artists. Great. Listen, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ken. It's been a pleasure. So could the next Rachmaninoff be a robot? The next Schubert be a sentient machine? Let us know what you think. And if any of you have put AI to creative use, let us know as well by emailing us at radio at economist.com. Next, 3D printing technology has developed quickly over the past few years, but its use as a construction method has been slower in comparison. 
Now it's finally starting to be used in larger infrastructure projects. So what sort of impact might this have on both the cities we live in and to the construction industry as a whole? Our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson, joins me now to discuss this. Hello, Hal. Hi, Ken. So what sort of construction are we talking about? We are talking about making concrete panels that will line the tunnels in three stations in the Crossrail project in London, which is the largest construction project in Europe. Okay, and so how do the machines work? They work by printing out a wax mould that is specifically designed for exactly the shape of panel that is required. Now, to understand why this matters at all, you need to take a step back and ask, well, why can't you just print the concrete straight out? Why can't you just print exactly what you want? That's the dream of 3D printing, right? And the reason is that when you do that, the concrete you end up with is not structurally sound. There's a big problem called the lamination problem, which is when you extrude a sort of line of concrete and then put another line on top of it, they don't join together well. And this is the big problem problem in direct 3D printing. So what sort of companies are working on this? The main one is a large private construction firm in the UK called Lang O'Rourke. They are specialists in prefabricated construction, which is where instead of building the whole building on site at the mercy of the elements and needing to you know, keep expensive equipment hanging around, you move as much as possible into a factory where you have controlled environment. And they've been doing this for a long time using molds to produce pieces of concrete that you might need for a building in different shapes and sizes. The difficulty with that is that making those molds is very expensive and wasteful. You actually need to be sort of master craftsman level to make these molds to the specificity required to make these concrete parts to go into buildings. But it sounds as if through 3D printing, we just throw it into a digital platform and we let the computer do it for us. Exactly. The computer handles all of the complexity of making sure everything is exactly aligned and you just print your mold instead of making it by hand out of wood and polystyrene. And now the best thing about Dr. Gardner's platform is that at the end, with the traditional process, you're left with this leftover wooden polystyrene that just goes to landfill. Now, when star architects like late Zahar Hadid do their precast concrete work, they create huge amounts of waste because they need so many different molds for all these ornate structures. But uh, with FreeFab, which is Dr. Gardner's platform, you just melt the wax down at the end and put it back into the tank and print it again. So it's a great win. It's harnessing both the technology of 3D printing as well as this new technique of this sort of waxy cement. Exactly, yes. And where does the printing take place? Does it take place on site? No. So the printing is in a prefab facility in Doncaster in the middle of sort of middle north of England in a gigantic air-conditioned room that has a huge steel gantry that lets the print head move around in a volume that's about 30 meters long, one and a half meters high and four meters wide. So I'm a little bit lost, though, in why you would need to have these individually printed panels. Surely if you're making a tunnel, you could actually mass produce these panels. You could, but the spec on the tunnels in Crossrail is actually very high. There's loads and loads of different ones that they want. They want the concrete to be able to wrap around the corners and up onto the ceiling, and they also want it to be able to do clever things in terms of not reflecting a lot of sound. They want the sound not to be, you know, really annoying and loud as thousands of people charge down these corridors every morning. And so how might this change the way we design our cities? 
So Dr. Gardner is teaming up with a man called Philippe Bloch, who is an architectural technologist at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Now, Dr. Bloch has been investigating a very old-fashioned technique called vaulted ceilings. These are used in things like the King's College Chapel in Cambridge to beautiful effect. And as well as looking really lovely, they kind of look like a web of stone, very intricate and detailed. They're actually incredibly strong. What most people don't know is that you can walk on top of the King's College Chapel ceiling it's easily strong enough to hold plenty of people up there. Dr. Block makes a new kind of floor using these techniques. And the exciting thing about it is that the floor is so thin because it doesn't rely on big, thick steel beams to hold anything up. All of the support is in the structure itself, which allows them to make the floor very, very thin. And if you built skyscrapers using this technique, and bearing in mind skyscrapers are mostly floor you would actually be able to fit an entire extra floor for every three floors of a skyscraper, meaning you could fit more people, more services, basically you know, more economic activity in the same building. That's absolutely incredible. Hal, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Finally, cricket. This quintessentially British, although very much global sport, has long held connotations of history and tradition. And he's gone, and Ian Botham has done it. Third ball... And the old magic returns. With a bit of help, I think one must say from the pitch, because it did appear to keep rather low. But what a start. And what a morale booster for Botham and, indeed, for Brearley and for England as a whole. 55 for one. But in recent years, it has adopted a more modern way of thinking, incorporating more technology into the game. Joining us on the line to discuss is technology writer Paul Marks. Hello, Paul. Hiya. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So Cricket has already adopted some technology. What are they starting to use now? It's a game of numbers, and uh, apparently Cricket fans can't get enough numbers. So uh, the International Cricket Council, which is the global governing body, has talked to tech companies and tried to work out what new ways they can engage fans. And their latest cunning plans are, are twofold. One is to map in three dimensions everything the batsman does. And the second thing is to map the pitch with a drone before the match and at lunch to see how the state of the pitch is changing. Now, are these two features of technology going to be enough to sex up a game that is known for its serenity? Well, it's already using a lot of technology. If you think about the Hawkeye system that they're using to predict where the ball would have gone if a batsman wasn't in the way, they're using sort of predictive analytics on screen. It's, there's some graphics excitement in the game already. This adds some very interesting analytics on the batsman. You'll be able to work out or see, in fact, broadcast graphics showing how they swung the bat to get the speed they do on the ball. Six parameters in particular. Will be, will be measured by a small sensor that the batsman places on their back. So it sounds as if the technology is used more for the assistance of the spectator than it is for the edification of the player. Well, it's both, actually. Initially, it's going to give the fans some new data, things like uh, follow-through angle, backlift angle. How, how much was the player moving the bat? And what kind of speeds were they getting out of it? But uh, Nasser Hussain, the former England captain, was at the launch of this technology yesterday. and He was saying it's going to be beneficial all round because players will be able to use the data to improve their game. 
people who are having trouble with their game can look at the numbers and see, you know, maybe I'm not doing this, maybe I'm not lifting the bat right, maybe I'm not swinging it right. It's going to be a consumer product as well as something for tournaments. It's going to be a $150 sensor anyone could put on a bat. It will talk to an app on your phone and give you the very same data. So spectators win and players win. What about the sports commentators that are known for their pith and insight? Yeah, well, they're going to have something else to talk about besides the cake that people are bringing them up to the commentary box. There'll be six new types of parameter they can talk about, about the batsman, and there'll be about four new ways they can describe the pitch from the drone that scans the wicket. So uh, it's going to give them a whole lot more to talk about. Dickie Bird is pacing up and down, looking as if he's dropped something. Yes, Beardus? No, no, you've got your glasses up. Uh, Field glasses. I thought you were raising your microphone to say something. 58 for three on the board. That's all for this week's episode of Babbage. The AI-generated music was from Daniel Johnson's blog, Hexahedria, and you can find more samples there. And we have some special news for listeners. This podcast now has its own blog, at medium.economist.com. So you can head there and tell us what you think. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.